Welcome to Collector's Corner, the premier digital art platform. We help collectors gain and maintain their edge, all while appreciating beautiful art. Let's jump in. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Collector's Corner. I'm super excited because I have my like instant friend. I think you're instant friends with everybody, but we have Sophia Garcia on today from Artex Code, who is, uh, you know, this is audio only, but she's looking great. She's in warm South Florida while I'm freezing, wearing like four layers. But, uh, you know, this like Sophia lives a glamorous life. So we'll hear all about it. And it's it's amazing that what you've worked for and, and gotten to, but we'll get to all that, some crazy stories from her. But first, how are you doing today, Sophia? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. This is, um, I'm, and agreed, instant friends. Uh, this is going to be great. I feel like this is going to be one of the easiest uh, podcasts I've ever been on. It'll just be a really nice uh, conversation. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking before we started recording and I was like, we need to pause because we're just going to keep going and this is cool stuff. So, uh, okay. I, I want to actually, before we go into your Web3 journey and everything, jump into what you were just telling me about. So you have some extremely early Tyler Hobbs, Dimitri Cherniak, other works. And uh, you were telling me that you have three of Tyler's work where he, uh, maybe you can explain it because it sounds like a fascinating technique that most people don't know him for. Yeah. I mean, hopefully I'm, I am explaining it correctly. This is, uh, but this is my remembrance of the situation. So he had, and I'm pretty, I, I feel pretty confident that I'm accurate. There might be like maybe one thing that on the technical side that I might be getting wrong. Um, but he had taken uh, his Wacom tablet to figure drawing classes. So if you don't know, um, Tyler is not only a wonderful generative artist, but is also a technically trained artist and is very, very good at um, draftsmanship. And so uh, he had taken a Wacom tablet. And for those of you who don't know what a Wacom tablet is, it's essentially a um, digital tablet that illustrators use to draw directly into the computer. Uh, and so he had taken this to this figure drawing class to draw, um, you know, nudes, uh, like, you know, nude figures. And through this process, he had, uh, and this is where I don't know if he, he programmed the Wacom tablet or if he ran it through a new program, but uh, he had essentially taken these, uh, these drawings that he had made and turn them into a single line using this triangulation method. And uh, these were featured in the first show that we ever organized at the Contemporary Digital Art Fair in 2019. Um, so you can see those like on our website, uh, but I, I have two of them behind me now and uh, they're just my fa my favorite works. And I was uh, recounting um, earlier that, you know, I really do miss the side of, of Tyler's practice where it was very focused on, uh, on, the human form. And it's something that fascinated me, especially in like the generative art space, because we really think about generative art as pretty graphic and, uh, you know, very slick lines and things of that sort. And here we have these really organic shapes that I always found really, really fascinating. And it's something that has always fascinated me in the generative art space, just finding developers, artists who are capable of wrangling code and producing really soft lines i think is really just always so fascinating to me yeah that's it's it's super cool and it you know i i remember tyler hobbs also did the wall uh which where he was trying to recreate a brick wall with coding including some of the imperfections there and now i feel like we're seeing artists like william upon trying to also with code recreate what we see in real life which is of course has these imperfections that are somewhat systemic but mostly random it feels like but yeah, that, that's awesome. It's amazing. I hope, you know, I've gone back and looked at Tyler's works 
on his website. And it's just so broad, the range of what he does relative to what he has released in our, let's call it like, like modern uh, generative art web three world with these collections like Fidenza. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And, and actually I want to just keep FOMOing a little bit. You also <laughs> have some of Dimitri's work and, and none of these are NFTs, right? No, 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 no. Uh, I have a really nice arsenal of non NFT uh, generative art. So in our community, it's probably like, you know, you can't see it so it's it doesn't it essentially doesn't exist to our community but it does exist um i i have them all here in my home um actually during the pandemic and all these things a lot of them have actually stayed in storage which is so unfortunate i have a lot still in some boxes so like i love the physical objects so much and there's somewhere like i have some works from vera molnar that i are still wrapped up because i haven't been in one place long enough for me to actually open them up get them framed and know where to put them um yeah, so I have I have a really I have some works from like Iso Hedren, uh, so uh, Caleb Og, um, more from Dimitri that are, you, that aren't behind me, uh, of course Helena Sarin, who is like my queen, but those are actually hung up here in the house. Um, I, I gifted one to my parents so that they could have it in their house. <laughs> uh, there's some works that they have that are are, are really fun, but um, yeah, you know this. It was just. Back in the day, it was just really fun to be finding these artists online and basically being like, hey, like, I want I want one of your works. Um, And at that time, it wasn't, hey, can you mint it? It was like, hey, can I get it printed or plotted? A lot of the works that I have are plotted. Um, There are some pieces from Dimitri. He had we had I have some videos where at the time, you know, he had he, he had posted a photo of this of this work and. Uh, we actually played around with the algorithm together to actually get the composition that I wanted. And you know, I was like, I actually want more dots than lines. And can we make that, you know, and, and this and that. And so we got one printed that I asked him to, to plot three of them. And so I have those plotted on smaller canvases. And it's just, um, oh sorry. Uh, and it was just like such good fun, you know. And uh, yeah, uh, that, that, that was that was the way that I had to do it before. And so it's crazy that it's all changed so fast and just like in under five years, like, honestly, it's feels so surreal that people are so into it. Uh, I, I feel like I had, uh, you know, that it was going to be this whole fight for at least a decade for people to really understand it. Cause that's how I felt the first time I put out um, a show that I was like, I really just want to show people what these artists are doing. It's so fascinating. And I, that's, that's really what what drove me more than anything that I really did see art as I mean code as an art form uh, and it felt so misunderstood so it's really incredible to see it actually be taken so seriously right now and not only that that it's actually like at the top of its game and, and people really look at it so so highly so um your your vision is completely manifesting and the industry is growing but it's it's funny to hear you say this being five years in because me being like five months in i feel the same way i'm like wait people don't get this yet and i talked to some of my friends they're like but you're doing what and you know the crypto markets are crashing like every centralized everything is imploding and it's like wait are we ever going to is it ever going to recover but i've been trained enough in this crazy market they'd be like okay this feels like it's probably the time to buy then if everyone's like really freaking out um but you know people are people are probably listening and saying wait who is this person and like oh, what you have all these like you know unique artworks from these amazing artists that are, are effectively revered now so 
maybe you can tell us, uh, I know you and I have talked about it, but maybe you can tell everyone listening what your journey was like getting into Web3 and then really like NFT art and generative art. For sure. Um, I mean, it's a very serendipitous, um, just kind of following interest and testing things out. But um, in college, I had been studying art history and I started interning at, at you know, galleries uh, around here. And then I started working at a contemporary Chinese art gallery here in Miami. And I did that for a few months. And during that time, it was kind of like, you know, oh, I want to, I would love to be a curator. Or I would love to do these things. But it very quickly it was very clear that I was going to make, I was going to be struggling financially for a very long time if I went down that route. And, um, you know, I needed to be able to take care of myself. And so I basically had to make the call um, whether I was going to continue on with my art studies or not. And I ultimately decided to test out um computer science, uh, just to see what I could do there. And I actually took a free course that was offered at, it, it, again, this was very serendipitous. I get a, I get an email that was like, they were offering a free pilot course at the local college, Miami-Dade, um, with Harvard CS50 class. So it's like their intensive introduction to computer science. And we would go to a classroom there. We would watch it online. We would have a professor in class answer our questions and we would do the homework, all those things. So I took that class. I learned C. Um, it was very, very difficult, uh, but I learned it. But through that, through that entire process, I became fascinated um, with the computer and the tool that it is, and the fact that it hadn't been, uh, it hasn't even been around for a hundred years. And so, coming from the, you know, the viewpoint of like art history, and at this macro level, everything that was being done with it was just so significant. And so, I became obsessed with the history of computer-generated art and how artists were working with this new tool to express themselves. And for the first time, technology, which before then was kind of this, and I feel like I've said this a lot in different interviews, but it's, it was this like omniscient, like all knowing thing. I would go onto a website. It just existed. I would go see an installation and that just existed. And now it became a very human focused endeavor where I was like, oh my God, someone built that or someone, you know, someone had to build that. It doesn't just exist. Someone has to write the code to make that. And now I have an appreciation for just how hard <laughs> that actually is. So it just changed everything. And um, that was at, around that time, I got really into just, again, like the history side and really just looking into it. Um, and in 2016, I started an Instagram, an anonymous Instagram account to kind of just reflect on all of this, which was called artxcode.io. And because um, artxcode was taken and I was just, you know, what did I want to talk about? I wanted to talk about art and code. And so, you know, artxcode, that's, that's really how that all came to be. Um, and, you know, I just started looking at more artists. I started taking more um, like um, like front end development, back end, you know, just web development courses. After that, really trying to like work up my uh, my skills to get a nice paying job. But around that time, I also started working at nonprofits um, and became obsessed with P five uh, processing. One of my TAs, Willie Avendano, still like one of my best friends to this day, was actually the one who during that CS fifty course was like, "Why don't you look into processing?" After hearing me talk about the things that interested me. And um, that changed everything because, um, you know, working in C, which is a low level language, um, you know, you're very, uh, things are very abstracted. You have to be like thinking about memory and uh, all of these things that were just very difficult. And he's, 
finding something that was very visual um, based and focused was very, very fun for me. So I started teaching uh, first Girls Who Code. I would do creative coding workshops. And then uh, we actually, I helped form uh, as like the founding director, uh, education director, Code Art, which is still around today. And um, actually, our community just came together and we raised uh, around $10,000 for them. So thank you all. Uh, let's focus on getting more girls into computer science and now more so on the generative arts scene. Um, but anyway, uh, throughout all of this, you know, I was still just chatting with artists and and uh, finding things online, sharing them. And then I ended up getting a job at JP Morgan. And so when I moved to New York, that actually changed a lot for me. Um, I was able to finally, uh, you know, afford to <laughs> collect works uh, in, in a way that I probably hadn't before. And I started meeting a lot more people. So one of these people was actually Emily Shi. Um, I met her at a creative coding event <clears throat> because I wanted to go see Dan Schiffman, to be honest. And she, he was there and Dan Schiffman runs uh, the coding train for those of you who don't know, which is an amazing uh, source on YouTube to learn about creative coding. He's an educator at um, at NYU and is also uh, part of the board of the Processing Foundation. He's just the best. And I met Emily there and I was so impressed with her. She was one of the only other women I had met who was really into all of these things. And I think, again, this is probably around like 2016, 2017. And, you know, it, I was just like, she's so cool. And because of that, I was kind of like following up on what she was doing. And she participated in this MIT hackathon called Hacking Arts. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And so the next year, 2018, I was like, I'm going to do that. And so I did. And I went to uh, Hacking Arts the, the year after. And that was where I had learned, um, you know, I had met the CryptoPunks and they were just so cool. Like Matt um, Matt and John, the, the people from Dada. And that was the first time this whole idea of the crypto collectibles hit. Um, I had also been my dad is really big into crypto. Uh, so in 2016, I had also experimented going to like a Bitcoin hackathon, just trying to like figure it out. Uh, we did like a microtransaction billing API or something. Anyway, um, but, like, so this is kind of like, these things are just kind of like falling into place, like just going to these events, going, it's like ch checking these things out. And actually a colleague of mine had sent over this event right he's like this sounds right up your alley blockchain and art in new york and go to this event and i was like okay and if he would have never sent this to me i would have never gone but at this event um run by the new arts academy uh i went and the super rare guys were there i actually got invited to the rare pepe auction i did not go um <laughs> so all of these things were going on but at that event they announced the first contemporary and digital art fair and while i was sitting there i was like okay they said that the booth was $75. I was like, well, I have $75. At this point, I had collected works from uh, both Tyler and Dimitri. And I was like, well, why don't I just show some works from my collection? And, you know, I can just start talking to people about this. Like, why, why not? So I recruited my friend uh, Sebastian Sanchez to join me because he had been working in the art world proper. And I was like, help me put on a show. And through these conversations, I actually started working with Dimitri to actually um, commission new pieces for the show. So uh, at first, it was just going to be me showcasing some works from my collection and just essentially having like a expo booth and being like, let's talk about code-based art. Uh, but then it turned into actually having a show where works were going to be available for sale. So 
Dimitri made all these new works. It was so much fun to work with him and going through all the, you know, I used to spend a lot of time in his studio and we would just go through all these different outputs and really find the right works to get there. And um, at the show also changed everything. OpenSea happened to be sponsoring the event. We were downstairs because we had print-based works. Upstairs, they had all the digital waste works. And so those of us who were <laughs> thrown into the basement uh, were... Um, you know, myself with uh, uh, Dimitri and Tyler, uh, Kate Bass with the CryptoPunks, uh, Mitchell Chan, Kevin A. Bosch. We were all downstairs in the basement. And it's really funny to look back on now, like, you know, a few years later that it's just, you know, it's it's just it's just been great fun. But since OpenSea was sponsoring and all of our works were physical, uh, you know, everyone's like, you guys should make an NFT. You should make an NFT. And we're like, ah, I don't know. We'll think about it. Because uh, I had known about them. But at that point, it was really big very focused on collectibles. So I was thinking crypto kitties, you know, and uh, things of that sort. So um, towards the end of that, we had one work by Dimitri that still hadn't sold. It was the most expensive work there at $1,500, uh, $1,595, I believe. Uh, so close to $1,600. And we ultimately decided to mint it. But again, because OpenSea at that time was so confusing to use, Dan, one of the co-founders of OpenSea, actually minted on our behalf because we were like, we don't, here's all the information. If you guys want it on OpenSea, this is how we can do it. And so he minted it on our behalf and um, it was just very crazy. So uh, it ended up being acquired, but I will never forget the collector being like, hey, can I just... Um, can I just buy the digital asset? Like, I don't want the physical. And I was like, what? I was like, absolutely not. Like, this is, you know, this is archival print, museum glass. Like, you're taking it. Like, I will meet up with you. I will drop it off. Like, you can do whatever you want with it, but you're going to take it. And when I dropped it off for him, so uh, Jake Brockman runs Coin Coin Fund. And he is, of course, you know, like, it makes all the sense in the world looking back. But that was the first time I had ever had to ask someone why on earth would you not want the physical, you know, like what is that? And so we sat down and then again, this is the first time I was able to see, you know, this idea of like a metaverse. So he showed me his digital gallery inside of, I don't know if it was the central land or crypto voxels, but he showed me his gallery and, and I have a video of him like showing me through all this. And I was like, what the hell? And, you know, it was, it was really fascinating to see, but at the same time, I was like, you know, it was 2019. I was like, well, you know, this is kind of like what the the fool out, like nerdy, really into it people are doing. This is great. But, you know, I didn't really think that much of it. And so through 2019, uh, whenever I sold one of Dimitri's works, we would sell an NFT with it, but mostly as a certificate of authenticity for the physical work. That was the way that we were really thinking through it. And again, at this time, I'm still have a full-time job at JP Morgan as an engineer doing everything. So during my lunch breaks, I'm running way, I'm running out to go deliver artworks or, you know, whatever it may be. And then I think it was 20, yeah, then 2020 hit. Well, we did do another show um, in, in Miami Beach that year for Art Basel. And it was, I mean, it was in Wynwood, but for Art Basel, Miami Beach that whole week. Um, and that was really great. We showcased Manolo Gamboanaon. We showcased Helena. We had some works from Ben Snell and uh, David Marugula and again, Dimitri. And it was just really wonderful. But it really wasn't until 2020 when the pandemic hit that we really had, that I had to really rethink the way things were going. So at that point, I had pretty much sold out every show, every online and physical show that we had um, done. And then the pandemic hit and we were going to do a show 
in Paris obviously gets canceled. So the fair does something online. And that was a complete bust. I was working with um, Harsha Agarwal. Um, and so he is uh, a dear friend and such a talented AI artist who I was just so enamored by because he was one of the first artists I saw playing with AI and really reflecting on their own culture um, in a way that we hadn't seen. So really some nice representation of just Indian uh, Indian culture. And um, it was really exciting and I wanted to get his work out there. And unfortunately, uh, just the way that the, the whole site was working, it, did, it just didn't happen. And I was like, okay, well, we're not taking this as a failure. We're going to have to really rethink this. And so we put all of his work on Super Rare and the work started selling like crazy. And that was the first time I had really understood the power of NFTs from like the business standpoint now too, because I didn't have to ship any of his work. I didn't have to pay for production to get the works out there. Um, I lowered my commission by 10% because I didn't need to put up all this money. It was like, okay, let's put this work out there. I will facilitate the sale for you. And then I will give you, you know, your cut, which now is higher, by the way, because you just made my life easier. And, you know, it was, it was just a really, really cool experience. And, you know, the work sold for more than we had the physical prints listed at, you know, and that was just such a, a moment. And so I really started to go a lot more um, in on that point and just being like, okay, yeah, let's, let's, let's do it. And now fast forward to 2021 and art blocks comes around and I will never forget Dimitri talking about ringers. And I was like, okay, well, how can I help with ringers? Like, let me know. And we, we posted this interview that we did with him where we, he walks through the entire process, which Again, one of these works that I have behind me is a precursor to uh, Ringers that he had done. He had sold um, these letterpress works uh, to fund, to donate money to Black Girls Code. So um, I was really, I really love this algorithm. And there's actually uh, a precursor to it also in the first show that we organized together. And so I, I can I can send you a link to that work. And Anyway, when Ringers came out, you know, we did this whole interview and there's a thousand of them. And I was like, okay, cool. Um, Launch time happened. And I was like, I'm going to go grab one after lunch. All of a sudden, 15 minutes later, he texted me like, they're all sold. And I was like, what the, like, what are you talking about? At this point, I, you know, it had taken me days to sell, you know, four artworks. I was like, who are these people? What is going on? How did a thousand of your works sell out in 15 minutes? And that was my introduction to the wild world of generative art NFTs in the art blocks world. And uh, it changed everything. So after that, I met, uh, I was introduced to Snowfro. We became instant friends. Like it was just, we geeked out for maybe like three hours the first time we were on the phone together. And um, he... The next week, very shy, Koi was like, I was wondering if you'd want to be like on the curation board. Like, you don't have to. Like, it's complete. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course, I would be honored to. You know what I mean? Like, and it just testament to how humble and amazing Eric is that he would think that it's, you know, this, that it would be some sort of burden on me. And I was like, please, like, I, it would, it would, I would be so happy to do this. And. And so, you know, 2021 was just a great, a great year for um, so many artists that I deeply cared for. And uh, it's, I mean, I have, I, I feel like I can keep talking about all these different things. Uh, you know, I know you asked me one question, but it's just so fun to kind of like go through all of these things. Uh, kind of, but please, <laughs> I'll stop now. <laughs> I've, I've literally written down four more questions. Um, that that I have off this and one that you already answered I was going to ask you 
uh, yeah, is there a favorite story you had about, wow, I can't believe I was there for that. But it kind of sounds like your, you know, basement of the OpenSea event moment with the Larva Labs folks and Tyler Hobbs and Dimitri and Kevin A. Bosch and, and Kate Voss. I mean, it, it's funny. I, I just saw Kate Voss speak in Mexico City at Bright Moments. And I was like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Like there's all these amazing people. It feels like like a PayPal mafia type of situation where now you all are like building this world a few le- years later. Well, what a, a funny, a funny story about uh, that was when we did the show in Miami uh, and just to save costs on shipping, I actually, uh, Seb, uh, Sebastian, who I mentioned before, and I actually carried the CryptoPunk prints because they did print some of them that they owned and they like had, uh, we brought them in our suitcase. Um, we, we had, you know, now it's crazy to think because of the value of them, but like, you know, we just, uh, we just flung them in our suitcase, locked them up and, and, and flew to Miami with their works in our, in our and I don't know, it's, just, it's it, again, that's another one. that's just like crazy to think about, um, you know, cause at that time it was just like, okay, yeah, for sure. Like we'll do that. And now it's like, you want the white gloves. You want to make sure that it's like pristine. And I don't know. It's, it, it's just a, Testaments the times, I guess. Yeah, and it's so cool the way that you kind of had these time about where where the this whole world was going um, with the NFTs. Because it's funny, I it, I literally just having this conversation yesterday in Grailer's DAO about how the prints feel like they're expensive, which is crazy to to think about. But it, it costs a lot of money to do a high quality print with high quality glass, and then storing it and shipping it. And Thomas Peterson was like, yeah, I'd love to give them to all of my screens collectors. There's a thousand screens. He's like, but it's like $2,000 each. Like I can't, I literally can't give them away. It's like that part is like more annoying than, than the actual NFT part. And I think the other side is like, you know, then it's the the manpower that goes behind it. So, you know, if it's one thing, if an artist is doing it themselves, but if an artist is also outsourcing that to someone else to deal with. And it actually is a very manual process of having to export the works ourselves, um, be talking with the vendors, making sure that everything goes well, then also making sure that on the customer service side, that things are being, you know, that things are being handled. And I had um, an assistant before that was managing a lot of these things uh, towards the end, because I used to email everyone. I was the one that was dealing with everyone and it was so wonderful. Um, and I had to outsource that at some point. Um, but then that also wasn't really working. I was like, oh my goodness. So uh, like that person ended up leaving and I put a pause on it while we try to automate a lot of these things because it's very, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, one, I never intended to be this like print shop. Um, it actually happened because after Ringers, Dimitri was like, you know, people want prints, uh, you know, like maybe we can work together. And I was like, yeah, sure. I'm happy to help you with that. Like, let's figure something out. I had the print shops in New York and he could go and he could get them signed. But then more artists started asking and it was like, okay, um, sure. Yeah, we can help you. And then more artists. And at that point, it was a really manual process. People would email us, like, you know, we were doing everything over email because I didn't have a developer and that wasn't, I wasn't like between everything that I was doing, like it wasn't. Yeah. So sorry for having to pause there. You were talking about getting a process set up for prints. Yes. Um, so it, it happened like also like out of nowhere, it wasn't something that, I ever intended to do, uh, you know, at first when ringers came out, you know, Dimitri and I had been talking about it. Collectors were reaching out for prints. And so, you know, again, like my thing is I've, I've always just wanted to help artists do what they do. And so, uh, you know, I said, okay, fine, let, I'll help you with this. And then, you know, slowly, but surely more artists started 
asking. And um, it's just, it became this crazy thing because we were doing everything manually. We weren't, uh, you know, we didn't have this like automation set up. I, I think my website was still running on Squarespace because I didn't want to rebuild the website and have to deal with all the things that happened that, that just deal with like, you know, running your own uh, site like that. So it was, it, it was like really intense. And so I had, I ended up hiring because I was the one before who was, uh, you know, reaching out to everyone and talking to everyone and it was wonderful, but um, it, it didn't make sense, especially as I was planning for, um, you know, our Basel and all these things. Cause last year we did a massive exhibition. And so I hired uh, an assistant to really help out with all of that. But even then, like it, it, it became unmanageable and, um, you know, the bandwidth and everything that goes into actually making these prints happen. And so now we have a whole stable of artists that need prints and we've kind of shut, shut that down, trying to figure it out because it's not just, Oh, let's get this printed. It's let's get this printed and signed and framed um, and shipped. Uh, And so the signing part is really what matters because a lot of these artists are, all over the place. They're not all in one location and they all want to sign their work. So we have artists in Seattle, we have some in Vermont, we have some in New York, we have some um, in Europe. And it's really, it's a lot harder than it seems uh, to actually manage all of that and uh, get it all out because anyone can print their NFT. You know, I can go into to, uh, my art blocks file and, and grab a high res, like, you know, I, export a high res image of this work and get it printed myself. It's a whole other thing to like get it signed by an artist. And I think that's the, that's the premium there on top of all the manpower that goes behind getting, because all of our frames are made in house. They are made handmade. I have gone to the vendors. I've seen everything, um, you know, they're, they're, they're top quality. And so, um, you know, it's, this is giving me an idea. Maybe we need to invent like a DocuSign, but for artists to sign, you know, their actual work so they can do it remotely and not have to ship it all over the world. Yeah. Well, I think the other side of this is that we aren't, um, I am at like a, a, a crossroads around providing prints or quote unquote official prints for works when the token doesn't mention the print. I'm very big on the connection between a, physical and digital asset if the verbiage is there to say that because I do look at NFTs as these certificates these records of authenticity of the work and you know if you have a work that is signed by an artist of a work that you own as an NFT what does that mean you know and I think it's kind of like a an existential question in like our space at the moment but you know it one it's clearly a service that collectors want and artists need, you know, that is one side of it. But at the same time, um, you know, what does it mean when you have all these tokens in existence and there's nothing on them that states that there are any prints? So um, it's a really interesting dilemma. And I've spoken with Artblocks about it too, because like it might be that now Artblocks manages the prints instead of Artex code, which would make sense. I think, you know, there are artists that we represent and that we support and that we want to be able to do all these things for them. Um, but, you know, it, it is a lot and it's actually not, you know, the, for me, what I want to do is, you know, curate wonderful shows, sell artworks the way that they're supposed to be sold. And so if they are physical works, if they are digital and physical, like, great, we can, we, we have a, uh, we have all that stuff already set up and it's not something that's somewhat of an afterthought, um, but it has been a really fascinating 
um, journey over the last year, like looking into prints and seeing how um, the relationship between the artwork changes once they see it in 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 the physical presence, you know, as a physical object. Uh, I know that you know pe- when people see open up their ringers and they have them on the wall and they're framed, like you know, they get so so excited and. I certainly from the collector standpoint, I would love to have some prints and it is kind of a, it's even another dilemma where it's like, okay, well, what if I sell the NFT, but then I still have the signed print. So that was also a whole issue because then every artist has a different philosophy on that. You know, Um, every artist has a different philosophy on that. And so it's really hard um, again when these things are all very manual with um let's say so i'll use dimitri as an example who was very very strict he was only going to produce one one print and that was it one print per artwork and after that it was done and you'd have to ship it and one of the hard things about that is that you know communication between two buyers is not always clear um you can place a bid on something and have no idea who owns it and have no idea that they even own the the, a print of it. And so we would actually have to come in sometimes as, again, brokering these sales, picking it up and like, you know, managing the entire shipment of that artwork because of privacy issues. Of course, they don't want to tell each other who they are. Um, and there are even instances where collectors don't even want to tell us who they are. They don't even want to give us their real addresses. And we can't ship to PO boxes. That's just the thing that our vendors are about. They don't ship to PO boxes. And so, you know, it, it's a whole, you know, all these things come into play that like actually make it quite difficult to 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 manage and trying to create systems around um, this. But I think a lot more, a lot of other artists are pretty flexible around it where um, they're, they're trying to come up with new ideas. So Tyler's a really great example of this where, uh, you know, he'll make a print and he just numbers them. So, you know, he'll he'll um, make a let's use the Fidenza, for example, my Fidenza. I want to print. Great. He'll send me the print and he'll he'll number it one. Now, let's say I sell my Fidenza and the next person wants to get a print of that, sure, they can order and he'll just number it too. And so things like that, which I think are, I think that's a really wonderful um, approach. And I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, I know that before with Aaron Penny, we used to put the hash address of uh, the of the work on it too. Like there was just, you know, it's just been a lot of really cool experimentation on like what works, what doesn't. Um, so we could talk probably like for, for three hours, like you're saying, because there's so many like super interesting nuances that are both for me, just kind of fun to think about. I know these are problems, but it's like, how do we solve this? Right. So, I mean, you're, you're like a, you're a software programmer. You're, you spent all day like figuring out, well, how do I put the system together and what makes sense and how does it work? And there's so many new things that are emerging with this blockchain world similarly. And I wanted to, I, I guess, like switch gears a tiny bit. Uh, all right, I can't help myself. One more abstract question. Um, okay. <laughs> you mentioned something uh, like a little bit ago that was super interesting to me, how you were fascinated with computer art because you were saying the computer as a medium essentially has not been around for 100, even 100 years. And, you know, the internet is even newer and blockchain is even newer than that. And in, uh, I was listening to a great panel with Seth from Bright Moments and, and Kate Voss, as I, as I mentioned, in, in Mexico City. They were talking about how these the art is really a reflection of the times and what's changing. And as the technology, you know, I feel like there's a real driving force here. It's not just art. The driving force is almost this technology and the art is like an expression of, of that and how we are relating to it. And uh, of course, we're always making art, but the, the nuances and the changes to the art how do you see now, given your thoughts and your hypothesis that was very correct about the computer evolving art, 
how do you see blockchain taking that to another level? Or is that something, uh, I don't know if that question makes oh my sense. God, we're, we're already seeing it. I mean, we're already seeing it. Now for the first time I can acquire a generative art work in the way that it's supposed to be experienced and um, expressed, which is performing in live in the browser. So everything that you acquire on Artblock specifically, you know, that code is running live in the browser. And that to me is like the biggest aha moment of it all. And so, you know, beforehand, like all these works, like the artist would need to kind of create these like emulations or kind of like uh, uh, these like physical reproduction of the work in order to sell it um and the pioneers back in the day you know it they had to be plotted i mean back in the day they didn't even have uh screens you know like they had to um everything had to be expressed into a physical form and there's been this gap between you know the i don't even know i'm forgetting when like the screen came around um with the computer probably in the 70s uh or like late 60s um between then and now, uh, and you still really had to create a physical component in order to sell it, in order for it to be uh, experienced in a gallery space. There are some amazing, incredible galleries who are very, very experimental in the way that they went about it. And, you know, for the last few years, there were there were collectors out there who were willing to buy a USB. You know what I mean? Like there were collectors who, and I had reached, I remember before NFTs, there was this artist who I thought was so cool. And I was like, would you sell me your file? Like I would love to own this artwork that is digital. And, you know, now for the first time we can actually acquire the work in, again, in its native format. And that is the biggest, uh, the biggest aha moment through all of it. And, and I feel like we're seeing uh, this transition. So there, there's a recent Artblocks curated called Roster by It's Gallo. And, uh, or yeah, I think It's Gallo is, is the name of the artist. And it's it's very dynamic, right? And we're seeing like X-copy type art, stuff that you you couldn't have in a physical. And I guess it's, I guess maybe that's not necessarily unique, but I'm, I'm trying to think of maybe the way that the blockchain is really influencing the art is how you can get, you know, oracles and inputs into uh, and, and bring that into the oh, art. Like, yeah. There's this collection I love. <laughs> that gets me so excited. Soul 365. Have you seen this collection? It's by uh, Corey Haber. And it's it's really cool. There's 365 of them. And in the metadata, each each uh, piece corresponds to a different city and a different day of the year. So first of all, it's a really cool people get connected to that. So I bought one because it had my mom's birthday and I really liked it. And then I looked and I saw it was my mom's birthday. I was like, oh, okay. Like I absolutely have to buy it now. I was maybe on the fence, but for sure now I'm buying it. And um, that was part of it. But the actual position of the sun has to do with where that sunrise is supposed to be in that city at that day in, in 2023. And it strikes me that without these oracles and stuff, you you wouldn't be able to create something like that. And it's that's really cool. Uh, ah, so many so many things that are interesting. But uh, w- one thing I wanted to ask you, you, you were talking about art blocks and how everything really took off then. And it kind of strikes me, I'm curious what you think about this, that this newest iteration, if you will, of generative art is this mix of collectibles and art where you have all these different traits. And now you can say, oh yeah, I want a red background ringer and like a yellow background ringer to complete my my collection. And I almost feel like generative art is perfect for that in the way that the outputs uh, really are sort of trait-based and at least the way they engineer them, they think about that and create the outputs. But then it's, yeah, there's something about collectible. I mean, there's all these people who I know now from the gen art world who are sneaker heads. And like, I never used to really collect stuff, but they're like, oh yeah, I have all these sneakers. And it seems like this fusion is really 
take making this explode. And I don't know. I've been thinking about this a lot lately and you've been thinking about it for longer. Love your thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, so yeah, I think there's a really interesting dynamic around the subjective side of art, which is, oh, I like this. And I only like this because I feel like it. And the objective side, which is again on this um, very, the traits, the rarity traits and what's rare, what isn't. But I think that we've also realized that the rarest doesn't always mean the best. And um, there are some things that come out that subjectively as a community, we're just like, oh, hell yeah. And I think one great example of that is the goose, the ring, the goose ringer, which is not rare. It is not like, if you look at its rarity traits, it's not rare. Um, it's, it's, it's really great. But on the subjective side, we're all looking at it and we've created this whole meme out of, out of the goose. And, you know, that is something that, you know, we've all done as a community. We've all decided subjectively that like, this is one of like the highest valued ringers. And uh, on top of that, there was, uh, and this is something that I've always wanted to explore because, it was, it's equally frustrating to see really beautiful works kind of get uh, sidelined because people are like, oh, well, it's not the rarest one or, you know, the rarity traits suck. And so there was a work uh, by Tyler Hobbs that we showcased at our exhibition last year at Art Basel. And it was one of the rarest uh, outputs I had seen. But again, if you looked at the rarity traits, it was a quote unquote floor Fidenza. Um, did I say ringer or did I say Fidenza? Um, it was... Uh, you said that. Tyler Hobbs, but oh, yeah, okay. Fidenza. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, thought, I was like, oh no, did I? But anyway, um, so the Fidenza that we showcased was very sparse. It was like a soft uh, a soft-shaped ones, but they were all, all very thin and there weren't, um, there's a lot of white space. And if you saw it out of context, it, like it doesn't actually look like a... Um, it doesn't look like your typical Fidenza. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that uh, I, I did want to push that, that dialogue where it's like, okay, this isn't the rarest Fidenza um, in the, I guess, objective sense of the word, but subjectively, yes, it is. And look at how beautiful it is regardless. So a hundred percent agree with you. And we talk about this a lot when we do our deep dives, it's like the, the, the grails of grails are the ones that come out completely unexpected. And it, it sort of begs the question of like, what, what does rarity even mean? I mean, the artists try to uh, control for certain outputs, right? They only want so many, you know, a small percentage of outputs to look a certain way, but it, there's blind spots and as to ways th things could emerge. I mean, in theory, you could have an algorithm that spits out a whole bunch of goose ringers, but like Dimitri probably didn't expect something to come out that looked like that. So it was never in the metadata. So it was never something that was identified as rare. But to our eye, we can clearly tell that, well, this is like the most rare one maybe of the whole collection. And it's it's sort of like our, our blind spots that, I mean, it's the, the serendipity that emerges from these emergent properties is so captivating. And I think you see that both the way people talk about it and in the prices, honestly. Yeah. But I think also like on the on the long form side, it is very specific to certain artists. So there are some artists like Dimitri does see the system as the artwork. You know, he had always envisioned uh, ringers like he wanted everyone to collect them in a grid because he wanted to showcase the breadth of his algorithm because long form is not easy. It is not easy at all. All, um, to actually be able to produce a system that can create works that all feel the same, that hold the same visual um, foundation, that same visual language, but there's enough diversity to actually put out uh, a thousand of them, but that they don't get 
that they're also not disjointed, that there's, you know, but also that there's, if there isn't enough variety, it gets boring, you know, and there's this really interesting uh, balance at play. And especially with ringers where he's only using what, four, five color palettes. Uh, there are some artists that really like lean into to colors as a nice uh, diversity side. But, um, you know, I've given, I've done a lot of mentorships with artists in the pipeline for, for art blocks. And, you know, you, you start to see where they, where they're struggling and where you can actually find like, you know, some added variety and things of that sort. But long form is very, very difficult. And it's not something that every artist does in the generative art space. And so I think one thing I would love to see more of and something I'm really excited to do more of next year is just highly curated um, releases of like, you know, not, you know, it's it's not going to be 500 works. It's not going to be, it, it might not, might be like 20. And, and that might be like a mix of different artists because that's always what I've loved to do. Find a lot of different artworks from different artists and create a storyline through them, you know, and create, um, you know, a different feeling through these group shows. It's it's something that um, makes me very, very excited and, and genuinely like my passion, just working with different artists and putting their works in dialogue with another. Um, so yeah, I'm, ex- I'm excited to see kind of like a more balanced approach in the way that we uh, collect generative art. Cause I do feel like right now it's like long form or nothing or, you know, like one of one sort of thing. And I think that there are more ways that we can um, engage with it. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I, th- I think there's a place for all these things, right? I mean, long form sure. has, has its place. Uh, editions have their place. One of ones have their place. These, let's call them like curated, like generative outputs have their place. And maybe that, that's a great segue because uh, I don't know why, but the, the first person that I really experienced this, I don't know if, what the right term is, but but Lars Wander, he, he's put out these fabulous like I guess they're one of ones, but it, it's the same algorithm that he's kind of been putting out slowly. And they're called How You See Me. They're amazing. Yeah. Like they're beautiful. And that was the first time I noticed this approach. And uh, yeah, maybe this is a good segue into Artex Code because uh, that Lars Wander, uh, you also did a show Lars Wander maybe a month or two ago. And I just saw your new uh, tennis art collection release with uh, Martin Grosser. And uh, yeah, so first of all, it seems like you're everywhere. So how, how are you doing all this stuff? And then um, maybe what, what's your what's your current focus and where do you want to take things with Artex Code as, as you look to the future? Yeah, so I mean, it's been one, I have to say like how I'm doing it now is because I've had, I have a team now, which I'm so happy about. So um, Josh Yakov and uh, Sony Marinero, which is like his online uh, alter ego. Um, I and I am I love both of them so much and they've made my life so much easier in just the way that they um approach the space and I'm so so happy about it. Um but you know one thing that's become very clear is that you know the artists in the space need help and that's something that I've always been very happy to um do and support them in that. And so one of the things that we've been looking in and especially with Lars, um, Lars Martin and Ayak Shells um, specifically is artist representation. And that's something that um, we don't really see a lot of in this space at the moment. And, you know, our representation is not exclusive. It does not mean that artists cannot go show their work at another gallery or they can't showcase anything. It's just, we have their back. The point is like, let's, let's review your contracts. Let's take a look at everything. Let's make sure that you're getting the best deal out of all of this with Martin's, with Martin's project. You know, like uh, we looked over all of the uh, legal agreements on the website. You know, I helped, I helped, uh, you know, do some art direction on their posters and things of that sort. I even had to jump into the code 
one of the days because uh, the developer wasn't around. And so I was like, here, I'll just make that edit for you quickly. Uh, things of that sort. We're just here to help. Same thing with Lars uh, when he did his project. You know, we were there to help curate the project, go through all of his works and um, get that done. And so, you know, it's kind of this weird mix of, you know, like talent, agencies meets art gallery but like no because <laughs> I, I I've always worked very much like a gallerist I just have this aversion to the term for some reason I think uh I feel like it pigeonholes um me specifically and like what it is that I'm able to do and experiment with uh because you know it, even like the Martin's project for example is a really great example like this is a it's a it's a corporate partnership and it was so fun to be working on the entire marketing uh campaign to work on, you know, even designing the jumbotrons that are going to be that were on display at uh, the finals in, in uh, Torino and in, in Italy and, you know, things of that sort. So, you know, we're really trying to um, work up our roster and start working with these artists to just help, you know, and and regardless, I mean, we want to showcase artists regardless if they're signed with us or not. It's just with your, when you're signed with us, you just have that extra help to really manage whatever. So like your emails, like, don't worry, we got it. We'll, we'll flag all of them for you. We'll see everything that's coming in and decide, is that a good opportunity for you? Yes or no. Because right now these artists are getting bombarded every single day with new opportunities. And it's really hard to uh, figure out what is good and what is not. And this is something that I've done for a very long time with them um, and for free. It's always something that I've done for just for the fun of it. And so it's nice now to actually be able to uh, form this into something like more legitimate. And then uh, of course, uh, art sales, primary and secondary. I've always brokered secondary sales um, again over like the last years more so um, on the like kind of like more high end uh, generative art side. So when there's new collectors coming in or something of that sort, you know, I'll get them, I'll find them an autoglyph or a good ringer or, you know, something along those lines uh, to get them, to get them going. So really being focused, focused more on having our smart contracts out so that we can actually be a jumping off point for the different types of generative art that are out there. So again, IX Shell is a really great example. She uses touch designer. She's not a, a long form generative artist in the, in that, in that sense. Um, and, you know, right now the only place that she can go is, is foundation or super rare. And, um, you know, that's not, we want to be able to be that place for, for them. So, you know, it's going to be a really cool place to come buy some really wonderful art, um, you know, and for artists to come and actually just like have, have be a home the way that I'm thinking about it more as a generative art house. And so we, have the best relationship with art blocks. We would most definitely have a powered by art blocks um, section of our of our site uh, and being able to celebrate some of the artists that we work with in their long form projects. Um, you know, we want to be able to work very hands on with collectors. One of the things that I, you know, the way that I see it is like our three our three shareholders are artists, collectors, and institutions, and everything that we're doing is uh, to support those three um, those three pillars, you know, and um, and not just every collector. And I think that's really important. It's really cultivating a wonderful group of collectors who actually understand um, why this is important and are have the best intentions with their collection. So um, this isn't to say you're not allowed to sell any of your artwork or anything of that sort, but, um, you know, I think I've seen a lot of um, artists experience um, some really terrible, uh, like, harassment from collectors who come into the space expecting something from their work um, and expecting uh, these insane 10x uh, expectations over the work and you know 
I do this because I know long-term culturally, this is also significant. And I know that long-term that this all makes a difference. And um, we're trying to write that story that in 30, 50, 100 years from now, we can all be really excited about everything we've produced and released um, at this moment. And so I'm really trying to cultivate a group of collectors who understand that and aren't going to go harass an artist because their floor is too low for them. Uh, You know, Uh, things of that sort. Yeah. I mean, that's... That's just that's ridiculous to me on many levels. It's it's like you know it, whether you're looking at this as an investment. I, I I just don't understand how people make investments, lose money, and then blame someone else for it. It's like nobody no nobody took the money out of your wallet. Like you did that yourself, so you have to take responsibility for that. But also, you know, art art isn't a short term investment. Um, it's it never really has been. You can't expect like I think last year was. Um, Last year is a, is is going is folklore from here on out. Do you know what I mean? It's it's not normal for something to be uh, sold at such a um, you know a reasonable price and then to be selling for a million dollars a month later. Like that is not sustainable. It's not um, it's not real. <laughs> um, it, it was it was really great. I'm happy for everyone who who sold their work and made a lot of money. Of course, like I'm I'm very. I'm also rational. I understand that that was like, why not like play into that? But I think that it's important for people to understand the long-term implications of what's happening right now and not be um, quite short-sighted. If you need to pay your bills and all, and all your money's locked up into NFTs, okay, sell an NFT. I'm no one to judge you on that. Uh, but I think that, you know, there, there's a balance at play and um, you know, this, this is a serious I take this very seriously because I, I, I really deeply care about um, the artists who are putting themselves out there and putting their artwork out there. And again, the implications of what this has on um, us culturally uh, for the long term. So, yeah, yeah I, I think it's it's fascinating. Um, first of all, it's amazing everything you're doing with Artix Code. And it, it strikes me that, um, it, yeah, there there is a question about how much there's so many questions for artists out there from pricing their works from who to partner with and who, where to launch and how to even engage with their communities and not to mention the emails and all that stuff and the printing you talked about. So I think it's amazing the service you're doing for artists and really the ecosystem. I mean, we need this, right? We need artists to come on to your point. We need institutions to come on. We need collectors to come on. And so um, I, I guess just like one quick question about as you think about the, the future of ArtX Code, and as you continue to just really like solve these problems and, and break down these barriers, as you all launch projects, will it mostly be in conjunction with the artists that you are representing and essentially helping them where you are sort of quarterbacking everything? You say, okay, like you need this here, you need this here, this makes more sense for your style or blah, blah, blah. Is that how you're seeing it? Um, like truly as an artist first, and then we kind of everything we do stems from there, whether it's, okay, yeah, you should, you should get into the MoMA, uh, which we probably saw over feet mm-hmm, recently, yeah. which is crazy and, and amazing. Um, yeah. Is, is that how you're, you're viewing the direction you'll be taking things as sort of what the, the, the space needs and not having too much of a, a firm roadmap? I, I mean, yeah, artists, one artist first, always, um, I've always uh, approached it in that sense, but I think it's also important that, um, it's like clear that it's not, we're not only working with artists that we have signed. I am, um, maybe I'm being too nice, but I just, there's so many artists that I love and respect and actually feel um, too much pressure of having a, someone signed on, being signed on to something or something along those lines. And I'm like, okay, don't, honestly, don't even worry about it. I'm still here to help you any sense of the way. And every, um, 
Yeah, every step of the way. And I will still continue to do mentorships with you and go through your artworks and give you critiques um, and still support you. Um, So I think that, you know, there are certain, you know, thinking through projects because we do get a lot of inbound traffic of people wanting to collaborate and wanting to do projects and wanting to do all these little things and, um, you know, finding the right artists for those things is also what we do. And so um, this is a really great example. We got uh, outreach from a really, for a really cool opportunity to collaborate with, you know, one of these OGs and they wanted to find the right artists. And we're like, okay, great, we will do that. And so after having that discussion, it was like, okay, um, we know exactly who's going to be this person. Um, Are they signed with us? No. But do we think that they are the right person for the job? Absolutely. Yes. And so I think more than anything, um, this isn't so much, uh, you know, you know, there are people in this space who are like very business focused and I really appreciate that. Also, I'm very relationship focused. And I think that um, more than anything, I I just I just care um, about the generative arts as a whole and um, what's going to um, be more beneficial for our story as a whole, um, you know, and what's going to be more beneficial um for, for a story, you know, that I, I I do think about that. And it's why, like, I don't release uh, projects all the time. Like, I think the last, like, curated release that actually came from Artix Code was probably, like, last year. Um, you know, we've done, like, a few things like that. But, um, you know, the digital was the last thing that we did, like, the big exhibition that we did. Um, and that took a lot. I, I put my heart and soul into that. I raised almost a million dollars to put that show on. And that was because I was so pissed seeing uh, Sotheby's and Christie's and all these people put our work out there, put these absurd price points on them. And, uh, you know, with a smile on their face, like it was disrespectful at that point. I saw them showcase a work of Dimitri's that we had sold a year prior that I loved that work. I curated that work. You know, I picked it from his entire arsenal and I was like, let's sell this work. And then they just threw it on a random screen, a uh, wrong aspect ratio. And then, you know, it sells for a million and a half dollars. And, you know, how am I supposed to explain that to someone? Like, it looked like a joke, you know, when they, when they showcase it like that. And so, um, you know, for me, it's, I, I, again, I take it very seriously. And so putting on that show um, was me like putting my foot down and saying like, this is how you showcase generative art and respect the artists at the same time and like respect what we're all doing, you know, uh, and experimenting with it. I, I- I'm sorry to cut you off, but I'm I'm too excited. So so I gotta everything you're saying really resonates with me. And you know, so you were talking about how some of these collectors are um, maybe making demands that don't seem fair on the artists about the prices going up. And to your point about the expectation that you know these prices like, don't expect to to sell something for a thousand x in like six months or whatever, uh, just because it happened once. And I think what's what's really interesting that's happening right now, and it dovetails a little bit to what you're talking about with the Sotheby's and Christie's stuff, is like w- this is a real movement. Like I've been thinking a lot about why this is happening. I don't think this is random speculation. I think something is truly happening here. And we were talking earlier about going to Marfa. How I was at Marfa in, in, in Mexico City, bright moments. You were at Marfa last year. And it's just, there's all these really interesting, smart people who all feel the same thing. And we're all sort of like having trouble articulating it. And I feel like there's this movement with Web3 where people, they, they want to be free. They want to be able to be able to express themselves and not have a boss, whether that's through art or writing or, or you know, podcasting or um, what you're doing in, in like building out the infrastructure of this world, whatever it is. And I almost feel like people are, 
um, I don't, desperate isn't the right word, but they're so focused on it that they are taking some of these risks and have these crazy expectations. So um, I don't think they should be doing what they are doing and, in, 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 you know, in some instances harassing these artists, uh, but I, I can understand the that motivation and where it's coming from. And at the same time, that is, in my opinion, driving these, these crazy prices and valuations. And the reason for that, in my opinion, is because it's, it's so early and this market could be so big. I mean, Bitcoin is supposed to be digital gold. You don't see gold going up like 5X in a year or whatever. Like the price of gold is almost uh, inherently very stable. But because the market is so, so, so big potentially, and we're like so early, you can see kind of this crazy volatility right at the very beginnings of something that could be a, a multi-year trend. And, and these, uh, you know, the, the institutions are are coming like the Sotheby's and the Christie's, like they see it, they notice it. And I've seen some behaviors happening that I just feel like this is wrong. This is not Web3. It's like, oh, let's like sell some stuff beforehand, but only to like the right people and exclusivity. And I don't know. I mean, I know some of that, there will be some of that in the future, but I'm really interested to see and hear your take on when these worlds meld, what 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 does it turn into? Because I kind of think that, you know, for lack of a better word, that shady stuff is not going to fly and there's open permissionless blockchain, like that's our ethos. But I do wonder what gets infused from the trad art world and what kind of gets combined with our, let's call it our Web3 art world. Uh, sorry, that was kind of a long uh, ramble there, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on you know, where's the space going? Like, where do you see this in, in 10 years or where would you like to see it and in, in what future are you trying to help yeah, build? Well, I mean, I think it's also important like to remember that the profile of a collector has changed drastically in Web3. So it's no longer just an individual or maybe even a family office that's coming in to acquire a work. There are pools of money with multiple people together coming to like, sharing their treasury and buying works, which also means that there's higher spending power. So because there's higher spending power, because there are pools of money at play, um, I think that's also made a a dent in our pricing and the way that people think about this. Because again, it's no longer like, can this individual afford it? It's, oh, can that DAO afford it? Probably. Or can this fund afford it? Because I think art funds in this way have also dramatically changed. Art funds historically have actually never really been that successful. And so um, it's really interesting to see now all of these funds come in and, uh, you know, and also rethink that model. I mentioned like, you know, uh, like pre-selling things to certain collectors and all that stuff. Um, I think also like, while I'm no, like legally, I'm not like, you know, there's no uh, fiduciary responsibility to the artist. I do feel like there is. And um, there are certain times where, yeah, I would like to place, place there. It's not just sell their work. It's not who's going to buy this because you can find a million people to buy it, but who am I going to sell this to? Who's actually going to give a shit, (laughs) you know, who's actually going to hold this work and, and hold it with respect and maybe put it up in their home and genuinely love this artwork. And those are the collectors who I really, really enjoy working with and who, yeah, will probably hear from me first when I say, um, I, if I have some work available and I'm, I'll let them know like, Hey, I have this work because I know, and I've seen their collections. I know what they're about. Um, and yeah, like that's that that mat- that does matter, and it matters in the long term because these works are important, and um, you know it's it's just not enough to just sell the work. You know what I mean? And this is something that does come from the the traditional art world, um, and it may seem a bit a bit gatekeepy, and I understand that, and I could probably get some pushback on it. But at the end of the day, my job is to look out for. 
the artists. Um, I They're the ones that I care about and the collectors who genuinely care also. You know what I mean? And that's something that happens through the relationships we build, through the conversations. And it's not to say if someone's like, hey, I'm interested in this, that I would be like, absolutely not. I'm like, you know, no, it's always a conversation though. And again, I, I think that this space is so fast. Everything moves so fast. And I really want to um, slow it down and, and be very focused on the relationships uh, that, that exist in this space. And so it's not just going on Twitter and being like, this is for sale. Someone like who's going to buy it. It's really like reaching out to people, like everything that I've done on my own. I pretty much, they have been kind of like pre-sold beforehand. You know, I reach out to the people. um, I let them know that it's going to happen. And so by the time that I, I release it, you know, like, Things have pretty much been like, you know, uh, caught for. There's, I do always keep some for the public. Uh, you know, I will always make sure that like people can participate. Um, but, you know, those collectors that I, that are, that have kind of like shown that they're about this life, uh, you know, like they'll get a heads up. And, and if we've had conversations, like I let them know. Um, and I don't know. I, I think that again, I, and I know that in certain contexts that can look really, really bad, but um, I, I know that I'm doing it for a good reason. I'm not doing it because I'm being greedy. I'm not, it's not like I'm trying to sell them at the top. I'm not trying to sell them at these like unreasonable price points. I'm just trying to make sure that these works are going to a good place. Yeah, no, I, I, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And this is a great point. I mean, I think that um, there, there are, there are nuances to this, right? And nobody, even us who are buying these online, like nobody likes flippers, right? Cause it's clearly people who are just trying to extract some rent from you or a tax from you because they have a faster bot or whatever, and they can, they can buy things more quickly than you can. Um, and it, I think it does make sense. I think that for this art, for, for most of us who truly believe in art, in the movement and they're not just trying to make a buck it's it's more like buying a house right you go in your house you take care of it and of course you prefer that your house goes up in value than down in value and you might move in five years and maybe that's more like you know a year or two in the nft art world but i met a, a really early autoglyphs collector and he was talking about how it's his responsibility now he minted many of them and he still has quite a few and he's like i i need to pass these on to other yeah. people. It's not just about, you know, selling isn't always a bad thing. Um, but I think it's, it's the intent there. And to your point about uh, pre-selling these arts to these pieces to collectors that, you know, have that reputation. This is super interesting because as these royalty debates come up, it's like, well, maybe we'll develop on-chain reputations. And so it will still be a, a select number of people perhaps who have proven themselves to be good stewards of this art that can purchase it. Uh, but finding those people might be easier and for artists finding those people might be easier. And that's another like wonderful thing about the blockchain. And on the royalty side, you know, when I do secondary sales, we have done like escrow services where it's like, you know, the, because I am like a trusted partner on both the buyer and the seller side, they'll both send it to this wallet that I have. Um, and then I will handle paying out the royalty. Like I'll do it myself. Like I'll t- I charge them a percentage for just like facilitating the deal. Cause usually I'll come with the sale. Um, I tend to actually work more on like the buyer side than on the seller side. Um, so I'll reach out to the buyer and I, I, I mean to the seller or they might not even have it listed, but I tend to, I have like a pretty good like Rolodex of, of uh, collectors out there. So, you know, I'll reach out to them, let them know that this is happening. And then, um, you know, I'll handle everything and I'll pay out the royalty to make sure that the artist gets it because um, it's infuriating to me that people think that it's okay to buy an artist's artwork and then not pay them their royalty. Again, I understand the context of like all of these creators and all these PFP products are coming in with all of these, you know, uh, um, you know, 
terrible, like exploitative royalties and da 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 da. Okay, that is a whole other whole other use case uh, that is not an artist that is releasing their work just to express themselves yes. and with a very reasonable royalty. And it's the reason why artists are even on the blockchain. It is the number one selling point. And so it's so, so short-sighted to, to try and circumvent that because it is probably one of the most noble things that this space has, has introduced. So um, yeah. Well, and, and like everything else, there's nuances debate. And I, you know, you see all these people like kind of, uh, you know, digitally yelling about this on Twitter. And I'm like, look, it, it, and I was talking to somebody about this. Like, it's very different if you sell 10,000 PFPs in your VC back versus someone who's been working on their craft for like five years or 10 years or who knows how long. And they are just want to make a living so they can do this all the time. Like, it, it's just a completely different story there. Um, and look, I do think there's nuances, right? Like, I don't, I don't think you should have like a, I'm going to use an extreme example, like a 75% oh, royalty God. and then the art selling for like a hundred thousand dollars. Like that's probably too much. And maybe we need like a tiered structure where like, as the prices go up, like the royalty amount goes down or something. I would love to experiment with a tiered structure approach to, um, to royalties. And it's something I've even thought about like on our side. So, um, like, let's say something was, um, you know, I'll, I'll use art blocks as an example. So they take 2.5% on um, every sale on secondary. So what would it look like if every, you know, two years or every year or something like it just decreased like 0.5 or 0.05. And so that there is a point where all those royalties now just go to the artists, you know, what would that look like? And um, that's something that I would love to explore and kind of have like a, a, yeah, like a scaling, a scaling uh, royalty approach. Um I don't know, like on like the smart contracts thing. Like I don't know how how enforceable that is or how that works when you're playing around with different uh like you know front end smart contracts to actually sell them, but um it is really interesting. And I do think eventually tech can solve all these problems. I mean, I and, and the, whether it's like through getting a reputation for being someone who pays royalties or whatever. I, I mean, I think uh, if you build it, they will come. I guess, and maybe that's like a little optimistic, but that seems to be how things have played out for 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 quite a while. Mm-hmm. And um, okay, okay, I I want to get you out of here on time because I know you're you're super busy, uh, and we didn't even get to talk about curation, so maybe we'll have oh. to save that for like a round two because I I I could go deep into that, and you're a phenomenal curator, so I want to learn from you as well, uh, talking about this. But uh, where where can people find you and find out more about Artix Code? So the Code website is artxcode.io, same as our Instagram account. Um, then you can learn just on Twitter. I am always yapping away on Twitter. Um, Sofia Garcia underscore IO. Uh, same with our Twitter, artxcode underscore IO. Um, I think it's also important to note that Code actually started as an anonymous account for myself. Um, and so that was actually where I would go and tweet about all these things and just talk and share all these things that my friends and family could care less about. Uh, And, you know, it's been really interesting now that I've kind of become more public about who I am over the last few years. Because the first three years of Artix Code, I was completely anonymous. Everyone thought I was a dude. And like everyone. (laughs) I still think everybody I talk to is a dude. I just assume so. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) So 
so, you know, it's, um, it's been really interesting to uh, find my own voice on, on Twitter and be able to share all these things, but then still also have artists quote around to kind of like share the work that our artists are doing and things of that sort. So um, for random, like hot takes on stuff, my personal account to know, learn more about what our artists are doing. Um, also my personal account, but more so on the artist code uh, uh, accounts. So uh, yeah, that's the, those are the places where you can find me. <laughs> All right. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, and uh, any parting words for our audience that you Ooh, wanted them to uh, take away? I think it will always be buy art that you like. Uh, just buy the art that you like. And uh, then nothing nothing can go wrong with that because you won't be looking at uh, the price points because you're just going to be happy that you have beautiful art in your in your uh, in your wallet. You know, just buy things that make you happy. Definitely. That you can afford. Definitely <laughs> echo that. Definitely echo that. Um, so thanks everybody for tuning in. We are at collectors underscore XYZ. If you enjoyed this, please like and subscribe. And uh, we will see you next time. Thank you again, Sophia. Really, really appreciate you. Thank you. I'm ready for the next one. <laughs> me too. Me too. Thank you for tuning into Collector's Corner. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you like this episode and want to help us out, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting platform of choice like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and follow us on YouTube. Please also follow us on Twitter for announcements as we expand to other social and content platforms. Our Twitter handle is at collectors underscore XYZ. We'd also love to hear any feedback you have. So please comment or reach out. We're always striving to be more useful and get better so we can help you in your collecting journey. The Collector's Corner team and their guests are not registered investment advisors. All views expressed on this podcast are personal opinions and are not specific inducements to make particular investments or investment strategies and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. This show is solely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, please consult a professional.